Up From the Ashes, Bad Sci-Fi TV, Big Sci-Fi Ideas, Episode 2. Our topic, the first episode of The Star Lost, Voyage of Discovery, first aired September 14th, 1973. Starring Kier Dulia, Gay Rowan, Robin Ward, Sterling Hayden, and William Osler. Written by Cordwainer Bird, actually written by Harlan Ellison, and rewritten by Norman Klenman. Directed by Harvey Hart. With our guest host, David Adam Collings. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Up From The Ashes, the Star Lost 50 Years Later podcast. And uh, this is the episode where we start jumping in and actually talking about the show and then also talking about some of the bigger sci-fi ideas and other sci-fi shows, books and movies that this episode makes us think about. And when I say us for this episode, I am joined by my friend, Adam Collings. And Adam, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Very good. Very good. Thanks. So glad you're able to join me uh, just for this. This is the first episode with a guest host. The episode one, it was just me talking about what I like about the Star Lost and why I'm doing the podcast. But this is us jumping in and just talking about the show. And so, um, Adam, you are a science fiction writer yourself. I am. And uh, at the end of the episode, I'll let you talk a little bit more about your your books. But go ahead and just introduce yourself and talk uh, just briefly about um, your your science fiction writing and also some of your science fiction podcasting. Mm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm Adam David Collings. Uh, I'm actually from Tasmania, Australia. Uh, I write a, a space opera series called Jewel of the Stars, and I uh, run a podcast called Nerd Heaven, where I kind of discuss various uh, science fiction TV shows and movies. And I kind of like dig into the story and look at the themes and all those kinds of things. Like a lot of what we're going to do right here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Only instead of Stargate or Star Trek Continues, it's it's this. It's the Star Lost. It's... Yes, a show that maybe doesn't deserve its own podcast, but it's sure getting its own podcast. Yep. So we're, we're doing it here. What we're going to do, though, as we're talking about the Star Lost, the Star Lost, some people call it the worst science fiction show ever made. And some people have a very nostalgic uh, memory of this show. And some people really enjoy it. And some people think it's just trash. Um, I don't know where you land on any of that. I don't know. I, I the only thing I do know is I think you have not seen it before deciding to <laughs> have me subject you to it for this podcast. Yes, that's correct. So I've I've currently seen the first episode and okay. I haven't progressed further than that yet. Were you aware of it before? I wasn't, no. The first I heard of it was when you approached me with the idea. Oh really? Mm. Okay. All right. Yeah, because this is one that if you know about it, you probably know about it from, you know, internet listicle things about mm. uh, worst sci-fi of all time, or you know about it because of the controversy with Harlan Ellison mm-hmm. and who created the show. And I talked a little bit about the creation of the show in the first episode. We're definitely going to be diving into some of that. I spent so much time with Harlan Ellison over the last couple of weeks. I have watched his YouTube channel where they have little clips of him from some old sci-fi network show called the buzz or something like that. And he did a thing that was just called Harlan Ellison's watching. And it was just him 
talking for five minutes about whatever topic he wanted to talk about. Sometimes it was people who deserved awards for their their writing, or he was talking about a new comic book that he read and hated, like Superman, Death of Superman. Um, but it was basically him like doing a podcast. It really, mm. really was. It was just him talking about whatever came up next. I also spent a lot of time kind of trying to find some interviews where he talked about the Star Lost. Uh, I've also... Um, I was just telling Adam about this book that I have here. This is called Faster Than Light. It's an anthology of st- stories about interstellar travel that has his original script. We'll get into the the differences between his original script and what we actually got to see from the screen. So this episode, you watched it. What were you expecting when you started watching it based on just my brief, mm. hey, some people call this the worst show ever. You want to talk about it on a podcast? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely did have that expectation that you had, you know, described it as being bad sci-fi, and some some people see it as the worst. So I, I went in with, you know, I wasn't expecting amazing things. I definitely saw some promise, and I definitely saw some problems, <laughs> as, as I'm sure we'll uh, dig into. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's mm. the whole point of the, the show, is to mm. talk about the promise, talk about the problems, because yeah, there's... I mean, just the high concept of the show mm. has so much potential. Now, Harlan Ellison, he'll be the first to say he did not originally come up with this idea of a generation ship mm. that's out there and has been out there for hundreds of years and people you know, have their own cultures that have developed on the ship. Um, he, he'll be the first person to say that he didn't create that original idea. Mm. Uh, and he didn't. Um, I think the one of the first, it was not the first, but it was also probably one of the best was Robert Heinlein's uh, Universe, which if you have not read Universe by Robert Heinlein, that is a fantastic book. It's old. I, I can't remember how old. I think we're going back to the 30s, maybe the 40s, but it is all about a ship that is launched from Earth and that has been out for so long that they've forgotten where they came from. And there's religion and culture that is built up outside of, you know, just the culture they came from American culture. Uh, and there are mutants on the ship that are kind of bad guys, but aren't they just, but at the beginning, that's what their, the intention is. They're called muties because they're mutants and they're descendants of the mutineers from years and years and years ago. Mm -hmm. And it just, it is, I really enjoy, uh, reading it i was first introduced to it through x minus one which is a old-time radio drama series an anthology series and sometimes they would take stories written by like ray bradbury or robert heinlein and and adapt it for that and that's how i first came across universe and then read the book because of that and if you've not read it seek it out but that's that's one of those things where you know it's one of those things that this obviously got me thinking about because it's someone else who did it a little bit better. <laughs> and now they did it on the printed page. Robert Heinlein wrote a mm. book and he was able to, there's no budget involved. And that's something we exactly. really need to talk about when we talk about this episode mm. is, is the budget involved. But um, yeah, so the episode starts out and we've got our three main cast. We have Rachel Garth and Devin and they're standing on the bridge of a ship and staring into space. Um, I'm not going to go scene by scene, but there are a couple things like this where I feel like we need to just kind of park here for a moment and just say, what were they thinking? Like this is <laughs> their opening <laughs> shot is yeah. 
three people staring at literally staring into space. Mm. Yeah. For a couple minutes. Like uh-huh. it is not fast. It is not quick. No. Uh, how did the opening grab you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think grab is quite the right word. <laughs> yeah, I just kind of looked at it with like, wow. Because not only was like they'd hold on each shot of, of each face for such a long time, and it was probably not as long as it felt, but it felt like a very long time. And yeah, and just like you know, you hold on an actor reacting with awe to something, you know, that that can be powerful. But the the pacing combined with the acting, it just left me thinking, wow, okay, so this is <laughs> this is something. <laughs> And and we'll talk about well I'll, we'll go ahead and talk about it right now. Why not? Mm. Uh, Harlan Ellison, that was not in his original script, but that mm-hmm. was one of his big things. Mm. They weren't even supposed to build a bridge set. His thinking was that you're not going to get to the bridge of the ship until the fourth season when they're ready to wrap up and be done, mm. where they've actually figured out what's wrong with the ship and how to mm-hmm. how to save them. Uh, that's when they would find the bridge. Mm. Uh, one day he came in to production and he said, well, what are you guys working on? And they said, well, we're building the bridge. We're building the bridge set. He's like, why are you building the bridge set? He had included a mention of the bridge mm. in his original treatment uh, for the mm-hmm. series, the, the series Bible that he wrote. And they said, well, it's in, the, it's in the Bible. It's, it's in the Bible. You, you, you put it in there. And he, he was so irritated. He's like, you don't need it. You don't need it until the end. And then after they took his script and rewrote it, that's where they start. Like they actually start on the place yeah. where it's like, you're not even supposed to be here until the end of the series. Yes. And they open the show on the place. Uh-huh. So they're not even yes. supposed to be yet. Uh, and not only that, but they start with it and then they end with it. So you have to, you have to see yeah. through that extended awkward staring twice <laughs> it's the same like it's not even a briefer cut like it's no. the same <laughs> cut with the same dialogue and the same yeah. pacing <laughs> i've read some interviews with the people who created it uh, and worked on the show after ellison had to leave because he well had to leave because he wanted to leave he, he quit he got out of there mm. uh, and that's why harlan ellison's name is not on the credits mm. it's cordwainer bird yeah uh so cordwainer bird is the pseudonym that he uses if he's not happy with you right. and if he's not happy with the product <laughs> yeah. and it's actually in his contract to mm. be able to use that pseudonym his pseudonym was at the time registered with the writers guild mm. and so his pseudonym could get writing credit they were very unhappy with him saying he wanted to use that but mm. the way he explains it as he's telling the story is um yeah it's core winner bird as in giving them the or this is for the yeah and so he was very, very unhappy, but yeah, you, you start with this moment that's supposed to be momentous. And in some mm. ways I feel like they wanted to start with that because they have Kier Dulia. He's from <laughs> 2001, a space odyssey. And, and he's, he's from a, a, a famous, famous movie with high, high sci-fi pedigree, but he's the one who was staring into the stars, you know, mm-hmm. and he's he's the one who's reacting to being inside the monolith. And I wonder if there's a little bit of that for the the director and for the people who rewrote the script, if they were looking at it and saying, we need to have our moment like that. We need to have mm. this momentous moment mm. <laughs> of staring in awe at, mm. at the at the space because they don't know. They, they've never they aren't aware what even space was like they no. 
come from an Amish community. But without that context, you don't feel that awe because you don't even <laughs> know who these people are. You just no. they're just staring awkwardly into your soul. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> now, and they're wearing clothes that, if you're post Star Wars, it feels natural, like the, mm. the shirts that they're wearing and stuff. Um, but this is actually, I mean, pre Star Wars. It, it's and they're actually just wearing clothes that. Amish people would wear mm. and that's the culture that they come from. So the high concept of the show is this a giant ship with all these domes and within each dome is another culture that has been cut off from the other ones for hundreds and hundreds of years. There's been an accident hundreds of years ago that they are off course now and the ship is in danger of falling into a sun, which I think they actually call the solar star. I think they called it that or a stellar star or something like yeah. that. Um, Harlan Ellison calls it a star sun in his, in his uh, script, but mm. um, it's the ship is going to be destroyed. They're all going to die if they don't do something about it. But of course you have, and they call them three young people, mm. three in the opening crawl or credit thing, the, the space, the finer frontier style opening narration, three young people, you know, and it's, these do not look like three young people. I guess, uh, um, her name's Gay Rowan, who plays mm. Rachel. She looks kind of young, mm. but but Robin Ward, who plays Garth and Kier, they do not look young to me mm. at all. They're Thirty, maybe I don't know. I, yeah, <laughs> to me that's not young. So they come from a culture that does feel very much very Amish, mm-hmm. um, and they it's an agrarian culture. They live in amongst forests. They you know they're they're doing metal work, but it's using old time forge and anvil kind of stuff. And they don't realize, like most people on the ship, they don't realize that they're on a ship. They think this is their world. And the Heinlein thing that I talked about called universe, it's called universe because the ship is their universe. That's all they know of their universe. And there's nothing outside of the walls of their ship. That's the same thing for them until until uh, Devin stumbles across the, well, it doesn't stumble across. In the original, he stumbles across. And this, he goes where he's not supposed to go, finds him on the ship finds a computer, talks to the computer, finds out what's going on with the ship, goes back, he's trying to warn everyone, no one wants to listen, and then they put him in jail, he gets out, he and Garth and Robin, not Robin, uh, he and Garth and Rachel all get out, and now they're going to wander the ship together, with each episode being a different dome, potentially. (laughs) We'll we'll get to those episodes, but for now, uh, that's that's pretty much it you've got your religious kind of zealot leader going on here in ellison's original script is a lot a lot deeper with that but it, it's it's a small culture they they would just want to do things the way they've always done them when you, we first are introduced to their dome to their culture what we were what we were thinking then when we move from the bridge of the ship he says i'll never go back mm-hmm. never go back and then we go back in flashback yeah, I, I I probably wasn't expecting to suddenly be in an Amish community, but I thought, oh, okay, this is interesting. So, I mean, I, I've I've read and seen enough sci-fi that you know I got okay. This is what we're doing. We're you know we've got this culture, and I, and you'd already seen the exterior of the ship at that point, so you'd seen all the little domes. Yes. So I'm like, oh, okay, so we're in one of these domes. These guys probably don't realize they're on a spaceship. Yep. Okay. So this this is kind of a this is our premise. <laughs> Now the the Amish culture thing that got me thinking about a 
I don't know how famous this is, but I know it got a lot of buzz, especially when it first came out, uh, Amish Vampires mm. from Space. And yeah. so I actually, the author of Amish Vampires in Space, Carrie Neitz, is going to be one of the upcoming guest hosts. Um, and so I was, awesome. cause I was like, ah, this gets me thinking about that, you know? And mm. again, this whole show is getting me thinking about other things, better things. But mm-hmm. um, so I'm really curious to see like what he thinks about their, their take on things here with, mm. with that kind of um technophobe culture mm-hmm. although the leader of the culture he knows how to run the computer yeah he's using the computer to make it give output that he wants it to give mm. uh, especially regarding uh matching people up with their with their life mates mm. <laughs> and and that's really what gets devin going yeah. he's in love with rachel uh-huh. and he he doesn't want anything to do with that and and garth is meant to marry rachel but he's not in love with rachel mm. and so you have this kind of it's not a, a love triangle but it's a it's it's a love angle anyway <laughs> and garth has his own reasons for wanting to be with her yeah which yeah. Which, are, which are different certainly different from devon uh, so he won't dishonor his family mm. yeah so to start with you've got conflict between devon and garth mm. because they're on the run together but you know garth is not happy with devon for mm getting him out and, and causing problems. And um, meanwhile, Rachel and Devin are both, they're in love. And so, you know, now if you're visiting another dome, uh, you know who the romantic lead is going to be. Mm. <laughs> and if, if there's another, if there's a girl in another dome, it's going to be Garth mm. who's very interested because Devin and, and, and Rachel, they're meant to be together. They're yeah. one of the, I was going to say they're one of the one of the great sci-fi romances, but they really aren't. <laughs> <laughs> they are a sci-fi romance. Yes. Some differences between the original and Harlan Ellison's script uh, was, first of all, there's a lot more to the, uh, I think his, his name is Micah, but to their leader, uh, mm. the leader of their, their, their dome. Uh, he talked like, he talked like Stan Lee doing uh, Thor's dialogue. Like he's he's talking thee and thou and mm. a very I don't know if Shakespearean is quite the right word, but he was upset because they rewrote his script without without telling him. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the writers who was involved in this, uh, what he specifically said was, uh, Harlan Ellison's script was unfilmable. It was it was too high of a budget. And it was too biblical. And mm. I was trying to think through like, well, what does he mean by too biblical? Cause I knew some of the concepts from it, mm. but I hadn't read the script. And I think it was really the dialogue that he was talking yeah. about where it's, let's see if I can even find a, an example here. Even in thy speech, thou art troubling. Thou callest <laughs> thy elder you with all familiarity. Thy stay in the hills has done naught to cleanse thee. Yeah. And so <laughs> it's, and it's all like that. Uh, and that's not how the Am- Amish talk oh, either. No, no, no. no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, these, these guys are not from 1600s England. They are from, you know, the American yeah, Amish communities. Yeah. And, <laughs> so, I mean, they're inspired by that. I mean, yeah, they'll, they'll use an occasional veal, though, I think. Well, mm. it, that goes back to, like, the, the, the biblical readings that they would do and, and things like that and prayers that they would do. Mm. Uh, but they also yeah. use a lot of German thrown yes. in there because uh, they speak. Actually, they call themselves the Dutch and call us the English. Um, mm. and so like, it's not a Amish culture. It's, it's inspired by the Amish culture. Yeah. Uh, so it's not, it's not a direct one-to-one. Uh, mm. I do right now, I live very much in the middle of, of an Amish, uh, community. 
Um, so the, mm. the town that I live in, Indiana, um, there's a lot of Amish around. Um, people visit us. They're like, I didn't think I was going to get caught in a traffic jam because there was a, a horse and buggy on the road ahead of us. And, <laughs> oh, that's cool. And I haven't read uh, Amish vampires in space yet. And so I'm getting around to that before Carrie comes on because I mm. want to make sure I can speak intelligently about it. But anyway, I'm, I'm curious to see like what, what he does with that. But yeah, it, oh, look forward to it. <laughs> okay, it's, it's a good right. book. <laughs> so the, but like I said, the, the dialogue it 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 gets heavy, and mm. I, I that would have gotten rewritten no matter what because it's just a mouthful. Yeah. I can't imagine mm-hmm. learning those lines. So yeah, I think it's really interesting what, what you're saying here about the rewriting of the script because it was unfilmable. It, it sounds very similar to what happened with the uh, city on the edge of forever with Star Trek. Yep. Where um, th- they said a very similar thing back to him. You've written this amazing script, but we can't shoot this thing. And he wasn't happy with the, the changes they made to that script either. Uh, I haven't read his original, but I do know it has been, I think, published as a comic book in the last it few has. years. It has. Mm. And, and he also published it as a book. Right. So back in the 90s, I didn't buy it in the 90s, but I did buy it recently. Because of this, I, I did. He published it as a book that had his first two treatments that he did that he made changes to because of notes and his first, his draft that won the Writers Guild Award. So that's the other mm. interesting thing about both of these. His draft of City on the Edge of Forever and his draft, Phoenix Without Ashes, which mm-hmm. is why this is called Up From the Ashes, this podcast, mm-hmm. uh, is, is riffing on that. They both, as originally written, won Writers Guild of America Awards. Mm. And then um, City on the Edge of Forever, as filmed, won, I think it was the Hugo for mm. for some sort of for best film science fiction or something like that but yeah so that's another similarity there and yeah there's a lot of similarities i i will say having um experienced his original draft of city on the edge of forever just recently it's not as unfilmable as roddenberry made it sound like when he would right. talk about it in in interviews and things like that mm. um it, it doesn't have nearly the big extended budget type of thing that you would expect uh, based on what what Roddenberry was saying. Mm. On the other That's hand, Phoenix Without Ashes, yes, mm-hmm. it yeah. it, <laughs> it was big. There's there's some stuff he's describing where it's like, um, so he has Devin find a spacesuit and follow verbal uh, auditory instructions to put the spacesuit on, so he can actually go out through an airlock into a. I don't know if it was a dome. I can't remember if it was a dome or if it was just a a, a room that's been Mm. exposed to space. So he goes out into it and he's able to look outside and see space for the first time. And then it describes the camera, like leaving through the crack in the window and sweeping across the ship, all 1000 kilometers of it. And like stopping to pause and look inside the Cypress, uh, Cypress corners, uh, dome mm-hmm. that they had and then continuing on along the way and like just the stuff that he's writing there's he's he's asking for zero g stuff where there's no gravity in this pod and just the stuff in that it's big budget stuff mm-hmm. but the other thing is they had douglas trumbull working on the effects from mm-hmm. 2001 and from you know um well, he worked on Star Trek motion picture later, but they had him working on the effects and he was going to do a new style of, of filming that allowed them. It wouldn't just be a strict green screen, blue screen like they use here, um, mm. which had all the hut, the haze and the, the uh, 
Um, yeah, that was just, one of the first things I noticed: is the, the oh, terrible blue screening in this episode. Yeah. yeah, and so this new style of filming was supposed to be where you could just take a camera, move it around miniatures, and mm-hmm. then insert into your your characters into the miniatures. It was supposed to look fantastic, and the test stuff that he had done earlier did look fantastic. They just didn't have time to get it going, and mm-hmm. it, and then Trumbull was out, you know, and so. Mm-hmm you ended up having people doing special effects who were not masters of special effects like Douglas Trumbull. Because Douglas Trumbull, he came off of Silent Running and he had just directed that and it had just been released. They actually used some footage from Silent Running in the the film that they created, uh, just a seven-minute little film to go and shop it around. And so they used effects shots from Silent Running to sell this show to NBC which because it was a CTV production in Canada but then it was on Saturdays at seven o'clock on some NBC affiliates in the states yeah. and that's actually why it got canceled was NBC decided not to pick up any more episodes um, because it just wasn't catching on the way that they thought it would but they they used that specifically those I mean big budget f- motion picture special effects to sell this show so Mm. yeah uh so there's there is some big budget stuff there um i will say adam if you have not had a chance to read his original it's worth reading and the comic Mm. book is i haven't read the comic book but i've seen some panels and what i saw of the comic book looks like they're very 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 true to the um uh, his script like it's direct dialogue mm-hmm. the panels that i saw yeah. were direct dialogue from it mm-hmm. and the artwork unlike some comics where it is supposed to look like certain actors and it just you don't see it uh the artwork for this it's shatner it's nimoy it looks like a, a very pastel rendered version of what would have been a live action episode like it, it looks mm-hmm. fantastic and and then it ends on a very Harlan Ellison note, which is this kind of the so the the same basic beats happen just with different characters doing diff, performing different roles in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the end, it's not McCoy who is the catalyst for he. It's not McCoy who goes back in time uh, and who's going to change history because he saves Edith Keeler. Uh, it's it's another crew member who's a drug dealer. <laughs> And, All right, <laughs> uh, and he's and he's on the run, and so he's on the run on the planet, and he jumps in, goes back in time, and they go back in time before him, and they're waiting for him to come out. And when he finally comes out, he's going to save Edith Keeler because he sees a woman about to be hit by a truck, and mm. he's a monster, but he's still you know a Starfleet officer. He's going to jump in and and act, and they have to stop him. Um, they get back. He then jumps into the the um, guardian of forever again. Uh, and he gets this horrible, horrible punishment for what he's done. And mm-hmm. it's just, yeah, I, I don't know how familiar are you with, with Harlan Ellison's work? Um, yeah. I mean, mainly from sitting on the edge of Ferrer, I know he had, uh, some minor input into Babylon five, um, mm-hmm. more on a mentoring kind of role, I think than uh, I don't think he actually wrote a great deal. But uh, he did have a yeah, speaking I, role. He, yes, yes, he did. In one episode. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, yeah. But no, I, I haven't, uh, haven't 
read a lot of other okay. that he's done. So, so some of his work is very nihilistic, very nihilistic. And um, the the big famous one is "I Have No Mouth, But I Must Scream," and it just it's just the whole thing is just nihilism. Like it's just these characters who are just wanting to die, but can't. Mm. And, and then it gets worse. <laughs> so, um, it's powerful. It is a powerful, yeah. powerful thing. Uh, a, a lot of his power in his writing that I've experienced from his writing is from his anger and, mm. and comes from, uh, just, he, he was an angry man. And mm. he, uh, but then he expressed it with such a strong and clever vocabulary mm. that you, you kind of look at him and you're like, well, he, he's angry, but at the same time, he's lovable, you know, <laughs> and he's mm. just, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that's where I, I, I'm, I'm not going to be watching much more with him. Uh, but I, I, there are a couple interview shows that he did that I really want to go back and, and watch. Mm. Um, but he's just a fascinating guy. And I just watching these, these videos of him doing his rants and that kind of thing. And then w- what I know from his short stories. And so the way he talks about this and the way he talked about city on the edge of forever, uh, it's, he's an angry guy. And mm. these people crossed him, you know, he tells one story of an editor, not an editor, a publisher who published a book. He had a contract that no one could put. I don't know if you remember seeing some books where it would have like uh, advertisement card in the middle, like a cardstock advertisement where right. you could like pull the card out and fill it. So some books did that back in mm. the 60s yeah. or 70s. And he had one that was a reprint of a book of his and they put an advertisement card in the center of his book uh, for cigarettes. And he was mm. livid. And he said, you can't publish my book anymore. You have to recall the book, take the cards out if you want to sell them. And they said, no, they were just, no, 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 no. Mm. And so he started on this whole thing and I'm, I'm listening to this. And I'm just thinking, I can't believe this, this, how did he not get arrested by doing this? Cause he's, he sent uh, the publisher a brick a day, like <laughs> uh, hand delivered mail. A, wow. He wrapped it in, in brown wrapping paper, hand addressed it, and just kept sent him like two hundred bricks. And <laughs> and then so the ed- the editor calls up and uh, uh, the editor of the from the company calls up and says, "What are you doing?" And he's like, "Hey, what do you mean? What am I doing? What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about." You know, he sent the guy. A dead gopher. He said, "Like he, wow. <laughs> um, he had a friend who was an actual hitman from Lithuania who looked like a hitman from Lithuania, mm. and he sent him to go and just talk to him, you know." And so the, <laughs> the hitman goes, waits until the guy comes wow. out of his office, puts his arm around the guy's mm. shoulders, walks with him, and says, "Yeah, your daughter's name is such and such. Your other daughter's name is such and such. They go to school here. They go to school there." Uh, you need to do what Harlan said about the book. <laughs> and I'm just like, Man, that's How? scary. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, this is, I mean, you, you make it, if you're an enemy, he, you're mm. going to stay an enemy, you know? And so he did, um, kind of soften on Gene Roddenberry, uh, mm. for a little while. But then, uh, when he did the book in the nineties, um, he 
let it all out. And mm. it, some of it sounds like sour grapes. Some of it sounds like super interesting details of behind the scenes. And yeah. all of it is done with his style. But mm-hmm. um, I, yeah, be interesting yeah. to talk more about it. Cause I, I think if it had been filmed as he wrote it, it wouldn't have been as good in some ways, but it would have definitely been better in other ways. Mm. But the changes they made, like making Dr. McCoy be the one who goes back in time uh, and is the catalyst of things. Well, that makes sense because it's a friend of theirs, first of all. And second of all, he's mm. a doctor. Like he's all about saving lives. Yeah. And then you have that moment where it's him and Kirk stopping, you know, Kirk is stopping McCoy from saving a life. And it's just a, a powerful moment. The moment mm. in Ellison's original script is not, it's more powerful in a way, but it's not a friend and a friend. It's, it's Spock mm. who's kind of having to hold Kirk back, you know? And so, yeah, yeah, there's, there's things about it that would be better and there's things about it that would be, mm. um, not, as not as good. And then there's the budget side of things, which, yeah, yeah, it probably would have been expensive, but I don't think it's nearly as expensive as what Roddenberry was saying it was. Mm. So, but this, this was expensive. This, yeah, <laughs> they had to change it. They yes. had to, I mean, you saw the effects though. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the model of the ship. Isn't bad. Mm-hmm. Um, the model of the ship isn't bad and they, they're literally doing, you know, filming it in front of a black, black sheet with like, mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know how they did the stars, but with like pin pricks in the sheet or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you get into those green screen effects, those blue screen yeah. effects. Like the one that, the that struck tubes. me the most, well, yeah, there was that. <laughs> but the other one that struck me was when he's sitting <laughs> at the talking, talking to the host, and you got this big blue halo around him, and then behind him, there's this, this yeah zoomed in version of like these digital clocks kind of sitting on their side, and you know they <laughs> they had all these wall panels that you saw all through Cypress Woods and, and everything. Like they could have just stuck some more of them behind him. That would have looked a lot better. In some later episodes, there's a couple moments where I was trying to figure out, is this just really bad video quality or is Mm -hmm. it a green screen? And if it's a green screen, why? Because then they cut to a a wide shot and Mm. the thing that seemed to be green screen behind the character is actually on Mm. the set with them. Like, I don't, there's some moments where I'm like, why is this even a green screen? I don't Mm. know. Um, Yeah, definitely a couple of moments like that in this. Like there's another one when Rachel's just walking through the same set that Devin is standing in, but she, she's green screened in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really strange. <laughs> Maybe yeah. they couldn't get the, the two actors there on the same day or something. I don't know. I don't know. They, the other thing is because of this, they had a small, small studio space that they were able to shoot mm-hmm. in. And so they didn't have a lot of space to work with. And so that might've yeah. been, they, they, maybe they couldn't get the depth that they needed. Mm. And so they just did the green screen instead. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but it does feel mm. small. That is a, that is one problem. Mm. This, this, ship is supposed to be huge these Mm. domes are supposed to be you know 50 miles or whatever wide yeah uh and they actually told them we're we're changing it to six the domes are only six miles wide and Mm. and he's like why would you do that why and they (laughs) said well because we can't get it to look like it's 50 miles away we can't get it to look like the dome is 50 miles away he's like Mm. this is a made-up dome like there's nothing (laughs) like what you're you're making up the visual language here just you could say it's 50 and it looks like that and Mm. yeah but you can tell it's just cramped sets cheap effects uh it reminds me of some old doctor who 
episodes mm. just slightly worse you know like it's yeah um, i mean th- this this was around the same time as the the john pertwee era on doctor who and mm-hmm. it, in some ways the visuals definitely remind me of that but in other ways i think you know for all its low budget that the doctor who had i think it certainly looked better than what this did yeah well they definitely did more with it i think partially because the production had time mm. to grow into yeah. the effects that were available to them mm. and yeah. and they just didn't yeah. hear and so. they'd be doing the show for 10 years at that yeah. point and, and they'd be doing the show for 10 minutes for the yes for, for the star <laughs> <laughs> uh okay so we have the computers the the one other character we haven't talked about um mm. that is it's in other episodes. Uh, I think he did a pretty good job uh, playing a visual representation of the computer interface. Mm. Um, and when he would repeat himself, I think he did a, a decent job. Yeah. But the other thing was I did appreciate some of the humor in just trying to like get the computer to understand what he's asking, you know, yeah. and, and what they're talking about. And um yeah. My favorite bit so, was where he was repeating something. I don't remember exactly what it was, but he kind of did this raise eyebrow thing and he'd kind of loop it so he, he eyebrows would go mm-hmm. up and down, up yeah, and down. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that gave me a bit of a laugh. But they're not looping. Like that's, <laughs> yeah. that's all him. It's uh-huh. all physical. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk. I, I talked about universe, but let's talk about some other things from other shows mm. or books or whatever that you might have, um, mm. like, especially with the generation ship. Because the generation ship is just, it's something, I can't remember when I first saw a generation ship, but it has just intrigued me ever since. Um, my novel, Ghost of the Future, either the next book that I want to do or the book after that, I want to be about a generation ship mm. that they come across. Um, and that comes from when I was in college or just out of college, uh, I wrote a spec script. It never went anywhere. Mm-hmm. No one ever saw it, but I wrote a Star Trek Voyager spec script about the Voyager finding uh, uh, generation ship, a few little tweaks, and I could take that idea that I had yeah. twenty years ago and and put my own people in it. Yes, but, totally. Yeah, what else did it make you think about? Or yeah, so I suppose the, the the two themes that I really pulled out of this that I was looking looking at was the there's the the idea of the control of a population through a false religion, and then there was the you know a population on a on a space arc or generational ship conditioned to believe that they lived on a planet. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, so there, there's, a, there's a couple of Star Trek episodes that fit into these kind of ideas. Uh, there's the, the Return of the Archons and the Apple, which both really had that, that control through religion kind of idea. Um, but the one that's obviously most similar would be For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. Yes. Um, yeah. Which, I mean, that was an asteroid. I went back and rewatched that. Yeah. <laughs> specifically for this, yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of similarities there. You know, the, the, the culture in there, who, the, they believe this is their world. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's essentially, it's a, it's a, it's an asteroid, but it's essentially a spaceship. And, uh, and then there's also an episode of the Orville, uh, called if the stars should appear, which is actually really similar in premise to this, even to the, to the fact that this, this generational ship is on a collision course for a star. And you've got these people inside that American frontier kind of era living in there, thinking this is their world. And if you want to kind of see what the inside of the, the dome could have looked like with a, you know, a, a modern budget, that's actually an interesting episode to look at. Because um, you look up and you see, you know, a blue sky with clouds, but you can kind of tell that there's like metal beams up there and stuff. Uh, so that that was a, a very, very similar one. The other thing it made me think of was the, the novel Ringworld by Larry Niven. 
Okay. Which is a bit of a different situation, but it still kind of had that idea of these kind of primitive cultures living on this structure in space, but not appreciating what it was that they lived on, thinking that they were just on a world, not not knowing that they were on on essentially a big space station. For The World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky, I specifically went back and rewatched that one because we were going to do this episode and talk about like some of the other things. I also went re- back and rewatched uh, the Doctor Who episode, The Beast Below, oh, which yes. that is an episode where they've abandoned the earth yeah. and the different nations have their own ships. Mm. And so the, the UK ship that they have, um, there's a, a mystery. There's mm. a very deep and, and, uh, unfortunate mystery mm. that is the beast below. Yeah. And I just, so David Tennant is probably my favorite doctor mm-hmm. of, of the newer doctors, but Matt Smith's episodes were really, really good. And this was a mm. Matt Smith episode. Yeah. It's early on with, um, with him and, uh, uh, Amelia. And it just, it's a powerful episode because they discover what's powering the ship. Mm. And, it's one of those things where the doctor has to look at, do I rescue millions of people or do I rescue this one thing over here? And I, one of the things I used to say about Doctor Who is um, that the Superman dilemma from Man of Steel, uh, I feel like works mm-hmm. in the context of the show. But I also feel like Superman will find another way. Mm. And that's where I, I look at the doctor and I always feel like the doctor will find another way. Like mm. if, if he's in a no win situation, he's not going to reprogram the, the thing, but he's going to find another way. And this is a no win situation where he chose one of the losing answers. Mm. And then Amelia steps in and her answer just makes the episode just so uplifting and yeah. so powerful and so good. But anyway, so I went back and rewatched that. Um, I had forgotten about the Orville episode that you were talking mm. about. That was, uh, which the Orville, I'm assuming you love that show, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's you... a lot of fun. Okay. It, it certainly scratches a lot just, of Star Trek itches. There was a time when I believe it was the Orville and strange new worlds were both coming out on the same morning for me. Mm-hmm. And it was like Thursday morning. I'd get up. It's my day off. And I'd, I'd watch both. But um, And that was a lot of fun. Mm. Uh, there is... The other thing this makes me think of is Red Dwarf. Mm-hmm. Now, Red Dwarf, the, the show as it's happening, isn't a generation ship. Mm. But it had gone through a period of time where it was a mm. generation ship. Yeah. Because uh, after the radiation killed all the humans there were these cats Mm. still left aboard that were protected from the radiation that killed all the humans. And so over the 6 million years of the ship, just crawling through space away from earth, a whole culture and civilization of cat humanoids Mm. comes on the scene. And when uh, Lister comes out of his time stasis, his punishment, uh, when he comes out, there's only two cats left on the ship mm. <laughs> and one of them dies in like the yeah. third episode. But, um, but so you have the character cat mm. and so it's cat and Lister and Rimmer, um, and they're on the ship together, but yeah, the red dwarf served as a generation ship for a while. You don't get much of it, but they talk about it. But then the most recent red dwarf thing they did was a, a movie and that movie actually dives into what the other cats who left the ship 
we're up to and and they come into contact with them. That's really cool. I haven't seen that one yet. You, you haven't seen the new movie then? No, I, I heard they were making a movie. I I thought they were working on a um, theatrical movie. Uh, so I was waiting to hear when it was coming to the cinemas. And actually, it was something that my son recently told me. Oh, yeah, oh. They, they did this TV movie recently, Dad. I'm like, oh, right. That must have been what yeah. they were, I, I need to, yeah. to find that. It's funny. It's it's back to form. Mm. And I'll say this. There's, there's, there is... There's there's never been a season of Red Dwarf that I haven't liked. Yeah. Um, but I've definitely liked some seasons more than others, for sure. <laughs> Especially yeah. if you get to the end of that first run. I think it was mm. season eight or series eight. I wasn't a big fan of that. But yeah, the the movie is pretty decent. Yeah. So My son is actually going through watching Red Dwarf for the first time at the moment. So I'm kind of um, okay exp- experiencing it through his eyes uh, in that way, which is kind of fun. Yeah, so those are some of the other kind of shifts. But but universe, like I said, that is mm. definitely one. Check it out if you get a chance. Um, the, there's an audiobook version of it you can get easily, and and then, I mean, there's been many editions of it uh, that have been out over over time. Mm. But Robert Heinlein's universe is good, very good. Mm. So, yeah. Well, one thing I thought um, that the Star Lost um, stood out from some of these, like these Star Trek and Orville episodes that I was looking at. They're all about, you know, the, the the space explorers coming to this place, finding these cultures and, and you know, I guess freeing them or, or letting them know where, what they're really experiencing. Whereas the, the unique thing about the Star Lost is that we don't have that external force coming in. This is the people themselves making this discovery for themselves. And we're seeing the story through mm-hmm. their eyes. And and I I think that's a, that's a cool angle that that not a lot of the other stories, I mean, it sounds like a uh, universe has that same kind of idea, but, but I liked that angle. And it adds to it too, where it gives the main characters agency, mm-hmm. like the, the main characters, they're on the run, but they're on the run because they've discovered this and now they have to find out more. Mm. And how are they going to fix things when they don't even understand anything? Yeah, exactly. You said promise and problems, you know, and, and the promise of this show and I've read Harlan Ellison's uh, Bible that he did for it. And he, he lays it all out, like just what makes this such a, a great premise to, to run mm. with. But the promise of the show is just, they don't know what's around any corner. Like they, mm. they go from dome to dome. Yeah. So it just, there's so much promise to it. And like I said before, I, I like the show and I, it's not an ironic thing. Mm. I'm like, Hey, look at me. I like this quirky stuff. I do like quirky stuff. And sometimes I feel like, oh man, uh, am I just weird on purpose? But I, I do <laughs> this. I like watching things that just engage the imagination, mm-hmm. even if it's not what's on screen <laughs> yeah. that engages the imagination. It's, it's more of the, what could they do with this? Mm. And this episode, I think, just sets up things so well. Now, Harlan's episode would have set things up better and mm. and might have had a better status quo for the, the characters that they're going out. Because mm. the way he ends it is uh, Devin and, and Rachel are gone, and they still learned about stuff the way that Devin did, but they're gone, and Garth is going after them. Mm. So he's the one tracking them down and seeking them down. And it is more of a uh, fugitive style mm. of relationship or um, the reporter from the Incredible Hulk, you know, who mm. he's he's the the only other main character. You've got Bill Bixby, you got Lou Ferrigno, and then I can't remember the reporter's name, but you got that reporter who's on some of the episodes, always a few steps behind, you know, mm. and 
And so I don't know if that would have been the case with Garth, whereas right now he's an ally. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's tension between the two of them, but he's an ally. And yeah. we're starting out with him as an ally. Mm-hmm. And there's so much premise to this, so much promise, I should say, to the premise. And it just engages my imagination in the way of, man, I wish I could have, you know, done a comic book series about this or something. Mm-hmm. When I was, right after I stopped with a lot of my comic book professional writing that I did, this is the other big thing that's kind of a, another... uh a similarity between this and City on the Edge of Forever. City on the Edge of Forever, IDW did the comic book yeah. from his original script. Phoenix Without Ashes is a graphic novel that IDW did from Harlan Ellison's original script. And I always wondered, like, w- did they have permission to go further? Like, could they... Mm. Now, Harlan Ellison passed away, I think, before they had a chance to maybe do anything with it. But I always wondered, like, did they have, like, a series in mind were they planning on going beyond what mm, he wrote yeah. or what, were they just going to stop where he wrote? But mm. yeah. And, and that graphic novel is pretty good. We're going to talk about it. We will do an episode about that graphic novel for mm. up from the ashes. Yeah. So. I, I've seen a meme, uh, which you may or may not have seen, but essentially saying, you know, instead of doing constant remakes of classic beloved things, why not find things that had a great prom- premise, but, weren't mm-hmm. done particularly well, and let's reboot those. And that really makes me think of the Star Lost, because, yeah, I think this kind of could fit into that category. Definitely. One of the things I put in my outline that I sent to some of the guest hosts already is talking about, does it need fixing? How would you mm-hmm. take the story outline and fix it or not? Uh, how do you answer that? Do you think it needs fixing? Yeah, I think one of, one of the things you said was, you know, is it broken? I, I don't know if I'd go as far as saying it is broken, but there's definitely things that could be fixed and improved uh, in it. And I, I kind of had this realization the other day as I was kind of thinking through, you know, the whole, whole idea of what would I do with this? I thought, hang on a minute. I'm rewriting Helen Ellison. Who do I think I am? Like, <laughs> I've I got, I got no right for that. To, you know, he's Helen Ellison and, and I'm just me. Um, so I'm kind of relieved to hear how much this has been rewritten from his original thing. So I, I don't feel so bad <laughs> about that now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For this first episode, I think that they probably would have kept more of Harlan Ellison's stuff if they had had the budget that they thought they yeah. were going to have. And mm-hmm. if they had the effects and the time yeah. to do the effects that they thought they were going to have, mm. um, like the spacewalk thing that I was talking yeah. about, they may have been able to do a, a variation on that. But I think that that got cut right away because there's just so much, so much expense there. Yeah. I also feel like though, this is of it, of its time. This is pre star mm-hmm. Wars. Now, the reason I even saw this in the first place when I was a kid was because of Star Wars. Star Wars hit, Battlestar Galactica hit, they were big things. And so CTV says, hey, uh, we got something that's kind of spacey. <laughs> let's let's put the Star Lost on Saturday afternoons <laughs> and, yeah. and let's get the kids to watch that too, you know? And so so that's how I came across it originally. Mm. And which I talked about, you, you wouldn't have heard this obviously, but I in, in the opening episode, I, because, because of that, it was on TV in the afternoon. I caught a couple snippets here and there and it just stuck with me. And I never was able to go back and figure out what it was, uh, until the internet came around. And one day I was sitting at my desk, probably needed to be working on something else, but I was like, (laughs) I remember that show. And so I just typed in, I, I, I'm pretty sure that the search phrase that I typed in was Canadian science fiction 
show or just something as simple yeah. as that. And that brought it up. And then as I was watching through the DVD set that came out, I finally came across, oh, I remember that scene. I remember mm. that. I remember no, <laughs> from when I was a kid. And so that's what got me interested in it as an adult was just looking it up as a random Google thing. And when I did that random Google thing, um, I found it uh, was mm. coming out on DVD soon. And mm. so it wasn't long after I randomly just looked for it. Well, here it is available. And so, mm. um, and then, like I said, it is available to watch in places where you watch things. If you are, mm. are so inclined to watch it that way, if you want to get it on DVD, you can get it on DVD. They did do uh, the sci-fi movie thing. I don't think it was for sci-fi channel. I think it was just for syndication, but they took two episodes and stitched them together to make them into a movie length thing that would get uh, airplay uh, in the mid eighties. And those are on VHS. <laughs> if you want to watch it that way, mm. it's, it's, it's out there easy to find if, if you're, if you want to watch mm. it. So, yeah. So speaking of finding things, Adam, where can people find you online? Uh, yeah, so uh, the best place is to go to adamdavidcollings.com. Uh, there you'll find uh, my books. Uh, you'll find uh, information about my podcast, uh, some YouTube stuff that I do. Um, yeah, it's all there. Um, easiest way to find the first book of the Jewel of the Stars series is... Uh, just go to books to read. That's the number two. dot com slash jewel, and that'll that'll take you to all the uh, the various uh, retailers that uh, where you can find that. Three books right now. Three books at the moment, and a couple short stories. Yes, yeah. It's it's a, a very long term planned series. I, I, I kind of structure the books a little like a TV show. So each book is a thirty thousand word novella, and there will be four seasons of six books each. Plenty more to come. And it comes highly recommended. Yeah, it comes highly recommended by me. I really enjoyed myself reading it. I could definitely see the, I could see it as an episode. Like as I'm reading, I'm like, oh, I could see this working as a, as a TV show. Uh, I don't know how much you would get rewritten though for budget reasons or whatever. You know, if, they <laughs> yes. were, if they were taking this and, and turning it into a mm. show, you know. But the other thing is, I mean, I don't know where you're going with this, but um, one of the reasons that I was like, oh, I wonder if Adam would be willing to do this and then you were able to do it quickly, which is something else I needed with someone quick. But um, yeah. I mean, the the Jewel of the Stars, the concept is kind of Battlestar galactic which is another generation ship that it ended up not being a generation ship. If you follow, you know, 1980 and mm-hmm. or follow the new show. But that's the kind of thing where it's these people who are just, you know, traveling across space to get from from point a to point b and point a point b is far far away and they're hoping to find it mm-hmm. um but you it's basically your your thing is battlestar galactica meets love boat mm-hmm. and it's you know you've got the ship it's stranded out in space trying to get away from the bad guys and they're not equipped for the bad guys and they, yeah. because it's a cruise ship which is the exactly. low angle and mm. i mean if you wanted to go like 500 seasons you know it could be a generation ship but i'm yeah. assuming that you have plans that'll be wrapped up a little sooner than that yes no so. i i have an ending i have i have a the plan of how i'm getting there so all right well thank you so much for for being part of the the podcast here adam and thank you so much everyone else for listening uh you can find the podcast online at up from the ashes podcast.com and if you want to support the podcast you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash 
up from the ashes where you can find bonus content episodes about star trek the animated series 50 years later which is another kind of serendipitous thing where oh star trek the animated series came out 50 years ago this week this is interesting let's and i was trying to think of what kind of bonus content i could do hey i'll do some short episodes about the animated series of star trek which is another one that has great promise has some problems but also because of the pedigree of people that they got to work on that show uh had some really big ideas and some, some kind of interesting ideas and some fun ideas and some dumb ideas so <laughs> we'll get to them but but again thank you adam for coming on and no thank you everyone for listening and until next time wherever your travels may take you i just want to wish you godspeed <laughs>